Hi, I'm Jack Farley, host of the Forward Guidance Podcast. I've got to get something off my chest. There's something that's been bothering me in the world of macro for a long time. You see, the world of macro investing is full of assertions about how different asset classes behave in certain environments. You might have heard one of these narratives that rising bond yields are bad for growth stocks, but they're good for banks. That inflation is bad for Tesla, but it's great for Bitcoin, but it's good for gold, but maybe not as good as it used to be. It's not that these sayings are wrong. They contain more than a grain of truth. You know, if you put up a chart of the US dollar index and a commodity index, you flip one of the axes, I mean, kaboom, it's it lines up pretty, pretty closely. So it's not that these sayings are wrong, it's that they're imprecise and incomplete. These charts show correlation, but they leave the ultimate question of causation unanswered. It's not about what's coinciding with price action. It's about what ultimately is driving it. So in today's episode, I wanted to deconstruct some of these narratives, see if some of them are right, some of them maybe a little shaking on their legs. I wanted to pinpoint the precise sensitivities of various asset classes to the macro economy. And so for that, I'm speaking to Hugh Roberts, who's an expert in principal component analysis, which is what hedge funds use to determine what is signal and what is noise in the world of macro. What phenomena is really causing price action and what is merely coinciding with it. Hugh is the director of analytics at Quant Insight. And today I'm gonna to be doing a little man versus machine type conversation. I'm gonna represent the person, the human being who's heard a few of these narratives. And I'm gonna propose them to Hugh, who's gonna represent the machine, who's done all of the work on the component analysis, specifically the sort of shibboleths that I wanna to propose to Hugh, the, the macro sacred cows, which we may slay, we'll see, are the following. A rising dollar is a threat to emerging markets. A rising dollar is a threat to commodities. Uh, rising bond yields are bad for growth stocks, but good for bank stocks. And that Bitcoin and gold are both inflation hedges. Let's take a look at what the macro machine has to say. Now we're joined by Hugh Roberts of QI Quant Insight. Hugh, welcome to BlockWorks. Can you just let viewers know what's your framework like for analyzing these macro assets and specifically how can investors use them to spot opportunities as well as manage risk? Absolutely. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Um, so Quant Insight looks at a whole clutch of macro factors. Uh, traditional variables that um, I think your your viewers will be familiar with. It's measures of growth, economic growth, measures of inflation expectations, uh, various variables that capture uh, overall financial conditions. So the steepness of the yield curve, level of real rates, the strength of currencies, for example. And then we look at uh, various uh, measures of risk appetite, VIX, uh, gold-silver ratio, stuff like that. And what we do is we pull them all together um, into a machine learning process that has a couple of very nice features. Firstly, instead of relying on correlation, we use um, a proprietary version of something called principal component analysis, which I uh, would love to go into more depth another time. But probably, you know, the, the 10,000 feet view is what PCA gives you is the orthogonal or the independent relationship. So too much of the research that you typically see out there at the moment relies on two-factor correlation. Um, dollar goes down, S&P goes up, therefore US equities apparently want a weaker dollar. That is too simplistic in this kind of complex uh, world where all these factors are themselves interconnected. So what PCA does, it just breaks down these relationships into 
independent patterns. So you can work out what the independent relationship between the US dollar and the S&P is, between crude oil and the S&P is, what growth and the relationship is with, with the S&P or whatever financial asset you're modeling. So what we've built in short is a framework that gives you any asset, whether it's commodities, whether it's crypto, whether it's rates, equities or FX, and it will tell you which macro factors are driving it. And then it will come up with a macro fair value, which means that you can then look at where the asset is actually trading and you can immediately see whether there's a big dislocation where the spot price is trading rich or cheap. That's so important, Hugh, because you know, you've been in the macro world a long time. I've been in the macro world a few years, and I hear things so often that seem to be right, such as oh, a rising dollar is bad for emerging markets, or a rising dollar is bad for commodities. And that kind of makes sense conceptually because commodities are denominated in dollars. So if the dollar is going up, commodities should be going down. And also rising dollar associated with uh, you know, a recession of uh, you know, slowing growth and uh, a waning of risk appetite. And so that it sort of makes sense. And then you put them on a chart and you say, hey, yeah, when the dollar is strong, that does take take a leg out of emerging markets. But uh, what I want to do with you today, Hugh, is propose these things that I've heard, these shibboleths, these things of, oh, you know, gold trades with real rates. Bitcoin is inflation head. Sort of take your pick. Uh, and I want to propose them and put them through your rigorous algorithm to see whether they they hold true so let's we're gonna do this man versus machine i'm gonna be the man you're gonna do machine so the first one is uh, a rising dollar is a threat to emerging markets to what degree does that hold up under scrutiny so i would just say at the outset that no more often than not those truisms hold you know they're they're, they're not made up out of thin air they are they're there for good valid reasons I guess our point or the QI spin on things is that these relationships aren't set in stone, that you know, we have regimes and regimes shift and relationships change. And it's important that you catch those regime changes uh, in a timely way. And really, you have some very clever people. I watched her interview with Lynn Alden um, the other day, and you know, she's got a fantastic brain on her. I mean, her ability to pull together narratives is second to none. But for us mere mortals, the ability to watch all these different asset classes and watch all the different factors that can drive them um, in real time is, is nigh on impossible job. So why not allow a machine to help with the process? And that's what we've built at QI. This is just the, um, the iShares ETF that tracks MSCI emerging markets. So if we just kind of scoot to the bottom, I'll go um, through a little bit of the detail first off. By using the PCA process, we derive a macro warranted fair value, and that is 1,258 at the moment. And we have a very strong model. We can say that with 93% degree of confidence. And there's no valuation gap at the moment, but we'll, we'll come back to that. But to your direct question, we go back down here, we can see these are the relationships between these factors and the asset price, MXEF. And as you'd expect, the biggest single negative driver is dollar trade weighted. So weaker dollar, stronger emerging market equities, stronger dollar, weaker emerging market equities. So all these variables on the left, if they go down, um, emerging markets go up. And all these factors on the right, emerging market equity bulls need them to be rising. Mm -hmm. So on the left is negative drivers. We have the U.S. trade weighted index. Perhaps some viewers will be more be familiar with that as the, the dollar index or, or uh, 
the DXY. Well, actually, excuse me, the trade weight index is that that's the dollar against sort of every single basket of currency, right? Exactly. People can think of it as another DXY. So it's a slight variation on. Yeah. Okay. So would you say this this does hold up? It does. Absolutely. At the moment, it's the biggest single negative driver. So the the truism in the market that you need a, a weaker dollar for emerging market equities to perform is borne out by the um, the independent uh, relationship that we see here as driven by the quantitative picture as opposed to um, this kind of hearsay or whatever phrase you want to use. Yeah, and I'm seeing a lot of other truisms I've heard confirmed, such as uh, you know, uh, emerging markets have a lot of commodity exposure. So I, when the price of iron ore goes up, the uh, emerging market index goes up. Uh, of the 530s swaps, that, that's positively correlated. So a steeper yield curve is good for emerging markets. Uh, China GDP is good. They import a lot of commodities. That's on the right side. Likewise, on the left side, uh, an increase in the China five-year credit default swap, uh, you know, Chinese credit stress, an increase in that is negatively correlated with the index. That makes a lot of sense. So, so far, Hugh, I'm seeing uh, the truisms uh, about the dollar and emerging markets confirmed. Now, how about rising dollar uh, as a threat to commodities, say oil and copper? To what degree is that true? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's always nice when we see a um, outcome that is uh, intuitive. Um, but obviously, the that's one of the things that we try to do is to challenge people's mindset to think about um, whether existing relationships hold or whether things have changed. But here's our copper model. So we have fair value on copper at um, 446 at the moment. Again, we're in a macro regime, 77% uh, model confidence. This, by the way, for the statistically minded um, uh, viewers, is, is a simple R squared measure. So it's just goodness of fit. So in the context of quant insight, all it's doing is saying, how good a job are these various macro factors doing in terms of explaining the variance of, on this occasion, copper? Let's scoot down to the bottom and we can see the same histogram. And on this occasion, again, we're getting... Um, uh, the, the, the kind of widely held perception uh, out there in the market vindicated uh, by the quant picture. So you've got dollar trade weighted as the biggest single negative driver. And again, you've got a pretty highly intuitive set of positive drivers, stronger Chinese growth, stronger um, commodity complex away from copper. So iron ore and energy prices down here. And then a general reflationary environment, because it's not just Chinese growth, but Really, it's a broader global growth dynamic with Chinese, uh, apologies, Japanese and European tracking GDP as well. And the fact that you've got rising both nominal yields and real yields. So, again, this is another kind of pretty, um, pretty intuitive and self-explanatory model on this occasion. And Hugh, if you were to scroll up to that uh, pie chart and click on DMFX to get the, the US dollar traded weighted index, it's a point that you mentioned earlier that the sensitivity of assets to macro variables such as the dollar is not fixed in time. It's static. So I have this uh, the sensitivity of copper to the USD TWI trade weight index over time, and it's gyrated a ton. And it actually turned positive briefly in uh, May and June. How, how do you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's as you say, it's just that these relationships ebb and flow. And if you think about the way we think about markets, and I think most macro investors think about markets, is in the context of regimes. Um, you now, you just think about the last um, two years. You know, U.S. equities were at the highs in February last year, um, and COVID at that point was deemed to be a mainly an Asian phenomenon. It was looked at as like another SARS-type episode. 
Um, then obviously we had very severe lockdowns, um, a severe a, a sell-off and uh, an economic deflationary hit as we've seen in, in a long, long time. But an equally big um, you know, policy response from the Fed, who slashed rates to zero, opened up central bank swap lines, um, expanded the scope of QE. And um, that saw an equally quick, you know, very V-shaped recovery um, come back. Uh, thereafter, you had this whole kind of narrative of, you know, Main Street versus Wall Street. Now, how could U.S. equities be rallying when so many people had lost their jobs um, and the economy was clearly struggling? Uh, then by the end of last year, it came to the election. And you know, for really the whole decade since the great financial crisis, all the response has fallen on monetary policy and on what the, the work the Fed has done. And what changed when the Democrats won in November, and particularly when they won Georgia in January of this year, was we saw more fiscal stimulus. And that prompted the great kind of reflation rotation trade in equity space. Now, they're all regimes. You know, we've moved from a massive economic um, headwind, the deflationary shock of COVID, to a huge policy stimulus as a result, to a Main Street versus Wall Street narrative, to a transition from monetary policy to fiscal policy. These are all regime shifts, which people in macro space are very familiar with thinking about. And all we're trying to do really is put a quantitative framework on that to try and help people. So the short answer to your question is, these relationships between whatever asset you're trading and macro factors ebb and flow over time. And all we're doing is measuring the sensitivity of any asset to that. So to come back to this specific example in the case of Dr. Copper, what we've got here is on the, the vertical y-axis here is just a percentage move in copper for a one standard deviation move in the factor. On this occasion, the, the dollar trade weighted. So you can see if the dollar trade weighted is bumped up by one standard deviation. Back at the start of the year, in January this year, that was consistent with copper going down by 2%, all else equal. And as you point out, kind of early in the summer, around mid-June time, that sensitivity had waned to, to effectively zero. So it's the ability to track these relationships over time that is one of the kind of the, the main use cases that, that, that people use. I'll give you another very good example very quickly is we were just talked about you know, the, the Fed policy response last March and what the QI model for the S&P 500 showed at that point was if you did this same chart for S&P 500 sensitivity to credit spreads, U.S. equities always want tighter credit spread. That's, a, again, an intuitive relationship. But sensitivity just ballooned. And the need for the Fed to keep buying credit and keep um, a lid on credit spreads became the main game in town. And that was the dominant driver of the U.S. equity regime throughout the middle part of last year. That's fascinating, Hugh. And uh, when I was looking at the chart, I thought there's a huge increase in that sensitivity, or I should say, a you know, it went from a very low negative level to a, a less negative level. And I think that probably has to do with the switch in the dollar index, because uh, from, you know, let's say, I don't know, uh, you know, May of 2020 to January of 2020, commodity prices were going up alongside a dollar. And actually, I think the commodities uh, prices went up, you know, especially after November uh, when, when Biden was elected. But uh, starting in early February, the dollar stopped going up and actually 
the dollar has risen. So even though we've seen all of these classic reflationary impulses, rising commodity prices, easing credit spreads, uh, the cl most classic reflationary signal of a weak dollar, the dollar has actually been strengthening. So it, do you think that that is why the relationship is twisted? Because the, pretty put simply, the price of copper has continued to accelerate, even though the dollar has accelerated alongside it. And also, what does that mean as if you're sort of trying to take a pulse of the economy and, and, and asset prices? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, the, the kind of dollar smile theory has become more, because it's been around for, for ages, but it's become more prevalent in, in, uh, in the last year or so. You know, the dollar does well at the two extremes of, of the curve when things are really bad and it's kind of um, uh, its safe haven status in risk off times is dollar beneficial. Uh, and then obviously when the U.S. is, is growing great guns and outperforming everything, it, it, it tends to perform as well. It, the, the sweet spot for uh, other currencies versus the dollar is in the middle part of that kind of curve. What we are doing at Quant Insight is really that obviously we've got big moves in macro factors. The dollar itself is, is obviously rallying, is, is coming off at any one point in time. Global growth is ebbing um, or increasing as, as over time as well. Um, and then you've got all these asset prices moving around. And that's really the point. Macro is an incredibly complex beast. Um, lots of different moving parts. And the nature of the relationship between all those moving parts isn't static. It's fluid. So at any one point in time, you've got to keep an eye on what the macro factors are doing and how those macro factors are impacting your asset price. And that will vary model by model, security by security over time. So it's it's a tricky process, but that's what the framework here is, is trying to help people with is, you know, trying to make it easier to keep an eye on these sudden shifts like you saw there. Mm. Shu, another shibboleth that I've encountered is that inflation is bad for all stocks, but particularly growth stocks. And that uh, you know, when, when there's bad inflation, bond yield will rise and that will increase the discount rate and growth stocks. Most of their income is in the future via a discounted cash flow model. So uh, ergo, inflation really takes the edge out of growth stocks, but it can be good for value stocks and in particular financial stocks like bank stocks or, or you know, the uh, ETF like XLF. Uh, when you put that through your model, to what degree does that truism hold true? Yeah, no, again, this is one that I think um, uh, is a fair example. In fact, just to before we get into U.S. financials, uh, we saw where I've been talking about regime shifts. Regime shifts can happen kind of in two broad ways. One is that um, uh, an asset just falls out of a macro regime. Um, it's no longer driven by uh, micro uh, macro variables. Now, if you're a bottom-up equity guy, earnings season at the moment might be a good example. You know, it becomes more about um, company fundamentals and idiosyncratic risks. So you don't really care about kind of um, bottom-down macro stuff. You're going to be you know, looking at the minutiae of, of company earnings. Uh, there'll be other times when it might be you know, a big uh, positioning or a big sentiment swing. A lot of our interest rate models at the moment, about 50% crudely of our interest rate models, are out of macro regimes at the moment, and you know, and fixed income is typically a macro animal. Because right, there's no earnings for bonds, you know, there's no earnings seasons for bonds. <laughs> no, exactly. But what you have had in the bond market over the last couple of weeks, obviously, is a massive repricing um, in terms of uh, what money markets are expecting from global central banks, not just the Fed, but the Bank of Canada, the RBA, the Bank of England. Um, and I think what you've seen is a massive um, positional flush. Um, you know, everyone, the consensus trade. For 2021 has been a steeper curve. You know, 
any bond market participant will tell you that if a central bank is describing inflation as transitory and is placing policy behind the inflation curve, then all else equal, that's going to result in a steeper curve. And that's the trade that the entire macro fixed income rates world would have had on and would have done very well out of, certainly in the first three months of, of this year. And probably still been running that risk for a large part of the balance of the year. And obviously, October has been ugly. Um, and I think you've seen a lot of um, pain and probably a lot of position capitulation. And as macro variables have stopped explaining some of the moves in interest rate markets, that's why our model confidence number drops and why it's maybe positioning or sentiment or flows that are driving those, those models instead. But the other uh, kind of regime shift that we see is where factor leadership changes. Now, equity guys will be very familiar with this because they're used to looking at kind of growth versus value versus momentum and kind of shifts between the various smart beta factors. Uh, it's the same in macro space. You know, you can be, you can stick with the, the, the fixed income example, you know, a bond, you might be bond bullish because you're a growth bear. You know, uh, because you're going to get low growth, that's going to see easier monetary policy. That's going to mean a lower rate environment. But sometimes bonds will rally not because of the growth situation, because of a flight to quality dynamic. It's all a safe haven play instead. So the bottom line is everyone, doesn't matter if you're a day trader all the way up to the most sophisticated um, uh, investor at a big blue chip um, buy side firm, what everyone is trying to do is predict price. And our point is purely that if you're going to be predicting price, you need to understand what's driving the price in the first place. You need to understand what's driving assets right here, right now, and then that will give you a better chance of predicting forward price. But anyway, what, the reason I raise all that is because we saw a, a pronounced change in factor leadership for US tech stocks, looking at NASDAQ, looking at XLK, uh, doesn't matter which um, uh, expression you had on. But earlier in this year, the very beginning, January 2021, all of a sudden, sensitivity to quantitative easing expectations stepped up dramatically and it became the dominant driver of all our growth models. And what that was saying was is that these guys were the most vulnerable um, to a taper tantrum, that if you started to see quantitative tightening uh, come onto the table instead of ongoing QE, that was going to be most negative for the tech sector. Now, again, that's probably an intuitive belief of most people anyway, but it's nice to see it vindicated in hard stats. So to the first part, yes, um, growth um, is still trading on our metrics like it, it's, it wants lower rates. And to the second part of your question, yes, XLF uh, in regime at the moment, 74% model confidence. Uh, it actually briefly fell out of regime. That's what this chart here shows you here. We had a, a small dip in model confidence, but we're back in a macro environment now. What are the main drivers of U.S. financials? And on the positive, you can see, as you'd expect, a steeper curve. You know, most people will have in their mind a steeper yield curve is a positive for banks because of net interest margins. Borrow short, lend long, simple. Um, Chinese growth, again, commodities, inflation expectations. So it wants to see a reflationary environment and a steeper yield curve, and all else equal, that is positive for financials, which at the moment are very modestly about 2.5% expensive on our model. Mm. So bank stocks like steeper yield curves. Uh, give us a little more detail on 
the growth stocks sensitivity to quantitative easing expectation and is QE quantitative easing uh, expectations the same as Q just the inverse of QT or are they measured differently? Also, I know if you, you click on the factor sets at Quant Insight, it says that it's measured via swaption volatility uh, w without you know going way over our heads. Could you just give us a little inkling about what that indicates and why it can be a good predictor of, of sensitivity? Absolutely. So. There is um, data, hard data from the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of England um, about their asset purchases, where they actually give you details on the size of their balance sheet and how many govies or mortgages or, or credit bonds they've bought in the last month. But that data comes out with a significant lag. Uh, and it's not very timely, so it doesn't help people uh, in a kind of real-time way. So what QI sometimes does um, is use proxy factors. And as you say, what we use for... QT, QE expectations, and yes, they are mirror opposites of each other, um, is interest rate volatility. Um, now, perhaps the simplest way to think about this is simply that what we've experienced since 2008, 2009, and if you remember before that, QE wasn't a policy tool that the Fed or any other central bank employed. Um, so it's really only since the great financial crisis that this has become a weapon in their armory. But what we've witnessed is since QE has come along, that has suppressed volatility across all asset classes, not just bonds, but equities everywhere. Financial repression means lower vol across the entire capital market structure. But the assets that they're buying are fixed income assets. They're government bonds, they're mortgage bonds, they're credit bonds, etc. And it varies. They have different maturities. But on average, the, the, it's the intermediate sector, intermediate duration. Uh, asset that they're buying uh, by intermediate would mean kind of like you know five to seven years typically the belly of the curve the belly of the curve exactly that so all we do is we take swaption vol for a intermediate uh, maturity belly of the curve and we're saying that when vol is low that's consistent with the market expecting ongoing quantitative easing and when you see vol rise that's because actually markets are worried about quantitative tightening so that's exactly what the taper tantrum of 2013 was about. And that's really what we saw again in the first quarter of this year. Whether you want to call it a taper tantrum or a data tantrum, that was the same kind of um, factor. So that's how we use a proxy variable. But the, So it's not, it's not official data from the Fed balance sheet, but the big advantages it has is the interest rate volatility market moves every day. So we're getting kind of a real-time gauge. Okay, and you were when you said um, growth stocks were becoming very sensitive. Was you were you measuring that with the Nasdaq or? Uh, yeah, so we another... like, didn't matter really. We have several models. We have the Nasdaq. We've got the Qs as an ETF. Uh, the Vanguard um, uh, Growth uh, ETF. Um, Socks, the Semiconductor ETF. We, we have a, a whole range of different models. And back in January, they all showed the same pattern, uh, and that was that quantitative tightening expectations became the dominant driver and the sensitivity went up um, a lot and it was a negative relationship. They were incredibly reliant um, on ongoing QE. Hugh, is there an example of a stock or a sector, an ETF, that has a lot of exposure to these central bank quantitative tightening expectations as measured by the swaption volatility, the volatility in interest rates in the belly of the curve? Um, just because I, you know, I'd be would love an example of that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the one that we're watching probably most closely at the moment would be U.S. investment grade credit. So um, we have that model either in um, 
uh, in raw form, i.e. the uh, the CDX um, uh, spread, um, or we have it via the the ETF, which is probably the more accessible um, way that um, most clients trade it. So if we look at our model for LQD, which is um, just the iShares uh, ETF that tracks uh, U.S. investment grade credit, if we go down to the drivers, you can see from the pie chart that by far the biggest segment. Of, and by the way, the way to think about this pie chart really is in terms of attribution. So we're saying we can explain 80% of the variance in U.S. investment grade credit um, at the moment. Um, of that 80%, which factor is doing most of the driving? So that's what the pie chart is showing you. And at the moment, just shy of a third of model explanatory power comes from our quantitative tightening expectations driver. And if we go down to look at the histogram, you can see they're all negative, whether it's Bank of England, ECB or Fed QE expectations, QT expectations, uh, they're all negative, i.e. lower rate vol, ongoing QE is consistent with the LQD ETF going higher. So that's basically saying that investment grade credit needs the Fed to maintain quantitative easing. Now, given obviously expectations for this week are all about the Fed starting tapering, if not this month, then next month, but at least announcing the start of the, the program with a view to it all being finished by the middle of next year, then that's a potential headwind um, for U.S. investment grade credit that, uh, that credit investors need to take into account. Hugh, that makes sense because if you think of the sort of the risk curve, there's treasuries here and then next in the chain is investment grade credit. When the Fed buys a bond from a primary dealer bank, then buys that from a pension fund, let's say, and then the pension fund is left with cash and then they use that to go on the risk curve. What's next? Investment grade credit. So the fact that the Fed would be withdrawing their support and re uh, reducing the amount of liquidity that they're supplying to the market every month, it makes sense that investment grade credit is also sensitive to that. And yet, Hugh, I'm looking at the LQD, it's within you know three or 4% of all time highs. I remember the big retreat that happened uh, was actually between December and March uh, of 2020 to 2021. And that was actually not over uh, tightening fears. That was over inflation. W was that correct? And, and to what degree is LQD sensitive to you know, inflation? Because after all, it is a bond. So uh, you know, very sensitive to inflation. Absolutely. No, I agree 100%. It is a fixed income instrument. And as we all know, that um, uh, inflation is inherently a very, very bad thing for anything that pays a fixed coupon. Um, so you'd expect it to have a negative relationship um, with inflation. If inflation goes up, that's bad for the price um, of investment grade credit. Um, so that does make complete sense. And again, this is this is our key point at the risk of being a broken record, for which I apologize, Jack. But, you know, this is the interconnectivity that macro investors have to, to cope with all the time. You have a myriad of different factors that are all moving around independently themselves um, and all will have an impact on the asset price. So how do you net all that out to see what macro warranted fair value is and then whether there's any dislocation between what markets are pricing in and that macro fair value. So this is, this is the framework we're trying to develop. And, and that's the, the other key point, I guess, is that different asset classes have leads and lags. Sometimes equities react quicker, sometimes bonds um, act quicker. Um, you know, at the moment, you've got a di massive divergence between equity vol and bond vol. Um, bond vol is elevated, VIX is, is, is near re recent lows. You know, which is right? Are equities complacent um, or uh, is the fixed income market exaggerating 
um, what's happening. And it's these leads and lags between asset classes that open up trading opportunities. Um, and that's what we're capturing with our framework. It hopefully gives people a heads up uh, to see where you know, the most efficient trade expression for any particular theme can be. Hugh, the narrative that I encounter so often is that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge. And that's a version of the older uh, uh, truism that gold is an inflation hedge. To what degree do these things hold out? It, does Bitcoin benefit from a rise in CPI or a rise in inflation expectations, I should say? And to what degree does gold trade with real rates as you know we've heard, we've heard for so long? Yeah. So on the Bitcoin one, yes, our, our empirical framework does actually back that up. Um, the first thing we think, I mean, our Bitcoin model, well, all our models, we think about the world via macro factors. Now, we'd be the first to admit that Elon Musk tweeting something um, can have as much of an impact, if not more of an impact, on various crypto uh, currencies than growth or inflation or financial conditions. So um, uh, you have to bear in mind that the, the quant insight model for crypto um, is looking at things exclusively via the, the macro lens as opposed to some of the more technical aspects, we call them. That said, you can see at the moment that uh, macro is doing a good job of explaining price action in Bitcoin. We have 81% model confidence. And when we go down to the chart that hopefully we're all now familiar with, you can see that inflation expectations, and this time we've taken a, um, uh, a global look. We've got Japanese inflation expectations, US inflation expectations, and there's European inflation expectations in there as well. They just don't feature as a top 10 driver, um, but they're all positive. So higher inflation means Bitcoin goes up. So that would speak to the narrative that Bitcoin is indeed a better inflation hedge at the moment. And if we go to the gold model, what we've seen is bizarrely that the, the inflation sensitivity is, well, it's, it's out of regime. So as I say, there's a health warning when um, uh, the, the model is not in regime, but the sensitivity to gold is negligible and has even been negative. So as things stand, the current pattern points to Bitcoin being the better inflation hedge. Wow. And when I'm looking at the top drivers uh, for Bitcoin, on the left, I'm seeing uh, Europe, uh, the euro one-year basis swap as very negative. That's in green. And then also in green as number four is the uh, Japan uh, Japanese yen one-year basis swap. What does that mean? Does it represent uh, the foreign bank's ability to secure dollars? And, you know, what does a negative correlation mean for Bitcoin? Yeah, exactly. So this is um, another proxy like we talked about earlier, where we use interest rate volatility to um, to capture uh, market expectations around QE and, and tapering. So during the financial crisis and in a few um, episodes since, You've seen funding markets you know, start to creak and creak really badly. Um, funding markets, one of those kind of classic things, when most of the time you don't hear about them. Uh, when you do hear about them, it's time to start worrying because things are going wrong in, um, in a very boring part of the financial system, uh, the plumbing that you don't really want to be reading about. So we thought it was important to have a variable that captures dollar liquidity. Now, there's different ways you can do this. Other people might use different um, metrics, different uh, money market instruments. Uh, we thought cross-currency basis swaps, which are pretty niche, but um, what they do, they capture is exactly what you've just described, which is the ability of non-US institutions to access dollar funding. So the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. 
it's the the market you know that, that really kind of keeps the, the the glues together the whole financial system if non-us entities can't get access to dollars then you know something's going wrong the cross-currency basis swaps at the broader level are giving you an ability to track Japanese institutions' access to dollars, European access to dollars, etc. So when a, a euro one-year basis swap is at negative 1.93, what does that mean? Does that mean that when dollars are harder, when, when dollars are harder for European banks to secure, the price of Bitcoin goes up or down? What does that mean? Bitcoin goes up. Uh, it's a negative relationship here means that tighter dollar liquidity um, is actually positive for Bitcoin. Um, so maybe that might speak to those people who believe that Bitcoin can act as a safe haven asset as well, that in times of stress, Bitcoin has value um, as, a, as a flight to quality trade to a degree. So the way to think about it is the way these cross-currency basis markets work is that um, if it's a positive number uh, and if that, uh, that market is rising, that's easier dollar liquidity. If it's negative, if it's inverted, that means that dollar funding is harder to come by. Um, so if it's getting more negative uh, and, you're, uh, and it's a negative relationship with the asset price, that means that tight dollar liquidity is beneficial to the asset price on question. And that's what you see here. Bitcoin benefits from, from tougher dollar liquidity on current patterns. That's really interesting because at the same time, it benefits from a weaker dollar, as you can see that the third most negative uh, macro driver is the U.S. trade weighted index. So Bitcoin benefits when the dollar is going down, but it also benefits when supply of dollars and dollar liquidity is tight, which generally when the supply of, of dollars is tight, the dollar tends to go up. So it's, it's, it's very, as you say, it's a macro is a complicated beast. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you know, some people would have listened to my last answer and said, well, I'm sure that Bitcoin just trades as a risky asset these days. Um, how could you possibly ever deem it to be a, a safe haven play? Um, and a lot of people would disagree with that. But you know, the reality is, is what the at this point, this is pure math. This is, is not my interpretation. This is purely saying and on this is our long term model. This is the last 12 months uh, rolling look back period that the independent pattern between the movement in cross-currency basis swaps, euro dollars and dollar yen, and the spot price of Bitcoin is a negative relationship. So tighter dollar liquidity has been consistent with Bitcoin rallying. Um, but yeah, so that's, the, that's dollar liquidity specifically. Dollar trade weighted, the actual kind of strength or weakness of the currency, um, is another variable and capturing another factor really at work. So you've got, you know, you've got a really quite an eclectic mix here. You know, it wants reflation if you look at the steepness of the U.S. yield curve and, and of the Japanese yield curve. It is an inflation play in that it's got positive sensitivity to both U.S. and Japanese inflation expectations. Um, it wants higher nominal yields. Wider credit spreads, you know, that, again, that's a, that's a defensive feature. You wouldn't expect a risky asset to be au fait with, um, with widening credit spreads. So it's really quite an eclectic beast, Bitcoin. <laughs> Yeah, wow, I didn't even notice that at the bottom. But as you did note, uh, it is uh, positively correlated, or I should say, it is the big driver is the uh, 530 swap at in orange at the top, meaning that as the yield curve is steepening, as uh, you know, essentially as as growth is going on, as 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 people are flooding into risky assets, Bitcoin does well. So you know, I'm really grateful that I met you, Hugh, and that I, I encountered QI because to be honest, this is the first time that I 
I myself encountered evidence that the Bitcoin is a negatively correlated asset and that it's not a risk asset. In other words, like when the world is burning, Bitcoin is going to go up. I found evidence in your work and in your analysis and your in your data that that's not true. That I and I actually on a much more basic level. Uh, just running correlations between Bitcoin and the S&P 500. I know what you do is well beyond correlations, but you know Bitcoin is positively correlated to risk assets, and it has been somewhat, you know, pretty decently positively correlated since March of 2020. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's one of probably the um, the, the attractions of the of Bitcoin and the crypto space in general is it, it can be many things to many people, can't it? It's something in the eye of the beholder. Some people like it as a risky asset play. Uh, some people like it as a safe haven play. Some people as an inflation hedge. Uh, for some people, it's uh, you know it's a more fundamental challenge to the entire financial ecosystem um, and a way to, um, uh, to to upset the apple cart and try and you know establish a new order. It's 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 pretty unique in that sense. It has so many different attributes. Yeah, uh, Hugh, we can see that the light is fading um, behind you. You are, of course, in the United Kingdom. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, my final question for you is, what are you seeing uh, in the credit markets? You had a note out that said that your measure of credit impulse suggested that global markets are experiencing a sharp tightening in financial conditions, particularly in the US, Europe, and UK. Uh, what did you mean by this? And what are the potential knock-on effects for, for the different asset classes? Yeah, so this is just, um, we're, we're kind of the background here. It's just that we're conscious that... Um, when we speak to the um, macro people, they follow these these moves and macro factors you know, minute by minute, um, so they don't really need much help. But for the equity long short crowd, um, and maybe for you know um, other people who are just a bit time poor you know, and don't have a you know big Bloomberg screen in front of them twenty four seven, you can't keep up with all the various shifts um, in macro variables. So we have all these macro factors as inputs to our model. And we look at them all in Z-score terms. Now, again, without getting into too much detail, all that basically means is we're looking at any um, time series relative to a long-term trend. So we're just saying where is, in the case of, say, um, the S&P model, you know, we're looking at U.S. growth relative to long-term trend, U.S. inflation expectations relative to long-term trend. Uh, and we think that's how most investors, or certainly institutional investors, tend to look at markets as well, uh, whether an asset is rich or cheap relative to trend. So we have all these macro factors and their movements in these Z-score terms. And we just basically, we've bunched together a group of them to create a credit impulse. Now, the strict definition of a credit impulse really is kind of the availability of credit as a percentage of GDP. Is it going up? Um, so conditions are getting easier or is it going down? Credit is tightening. Um, it's similar to there's lots of um, FCIs, financial conditions indicators. And uh, again, People will will throw different variables into these models and there will be slight differences in methodology. But what they're all trying to do is basically give you a sense of whether credit conditions are easing or tightening. And obviously, the, the intuitive investment conclusion holds that, that if you see tighter financial conditions, then risky assets will suffer. Risky assets generally like it when there's easy money and easy credit around. Except for Bitcoin. Bitcoin likes a little stress. It Bitcoin, Bitcoin likes the thrill. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Bitcoin is, is, is a unique animal, as we know. So that's um, slightly different. But yes, as a rule of thumb, most risky assets, equities, emerging markets, um, want easy credit rather than tight. So what we've done here is we've literally just lumped together um, a bunch of our, um, our inputs. And they, uh, they include 
credit spreads, both investment grade and high yield. Uh, we've talked about proxies already in the context of QE, uh, and that's included here. The proxy we use for central bank rate expectations, policy rates, is um, calendar spreads. Now, for those who aren't familiar with that as a, uh, as a phrase, basically every, um, every currency's money market has a strip going out from you know, spot prices all the way out to kind of two, three years maturity. And as that strip kind of um, flattens or steepens, is really the market betting on both the speed of rate hikes or rate cuts and what's known as the terminal rate, i.e., let's say we're about to start a rate hiking cycle um, in the U.S., What's the terminal rate? Is it going to will the Fed stop at one percent, two percent, three percent? That's the terminal rate, and the the calendar spreads capture uh, the speed of which um, markets discount we're going to get to that terminal rate. Those cross currency basis swaps we talked about earlier, they're really a measure of liquidity, so we threw them in there as well. Uh, other factors that we have in our models are the level of real yields. Uh, you've seen a couple of times the shape of the yield curve, the five thirty yield curve. Um, as a critical variable, you know, you'll tend to see um, yield curves steepen in reflationary good times, flatten uh, when there's deflation and recession fears ahead. And then obviously the relative strength or weakness of a currency, again, will, will be thrown into to the mix. And what we did was we took all these various factors that speak to um, financial conditions um, and we look at them in these Z-score terms, i.e. where they are relative to trend, and we threw them into together for kind of four geographical blocks and that's the chart that you see before you now, basically, which just um, measures uh, that credit impulse. So if you're north of the line, credit conditions are getting easier if relative to trend. If you're south of the line, then credit conditions are tightening relative to long-term trend. And you can see we've had easy conditions in, in credit terms for much of the post-March 20 lockdown period, but started to roll over and roll over aggressively in the last few months. And in many cases, um, certainly apart from Japan, in US, Europe and the UK, we are now well below trend in, in, in Z-score terms. So that's just basically saying, again, the, the point we've made a, a couple of times in, in, in this conversation is that by looking at these various macro factors, shape of the yield curve, level of real yields, strength of the, of the currency, access to dollar funding, uh, tightness of credit markets or not, uh, credit spreads, I beg your pardon. When you throw all those together, you get this kind of aggregate story that is telling you that credit conditions are tightening. Um, and that is typically bad for risky assets. At the moment, the S&P 500 is, is uh, ignoring that. Um, that might be because you believe it's an earnings dynamic. There could be many reasons for it. Um, but at the moment, that's not being picked up by markets. But it is something that we would definitely uh, advocate people keep an eye on. Hugh, uh, it's been great having you on as man versus machine. I think uh, I, as a man, have learned a lot from your machine's uh, uh, insights. Hugh, if we were, um, if, I, could I, if I could ask you, it's been great having you on as the machine. Could I ask you a question as a, as a man, as a, as a human, not as the, as a as a you know a computer? Which is what do what do you think is going to happen um, now that central banks uh, have already started to tighten? Are about to tighten their balance sheets. Do you think that it, it you know, will uh, risk, you know, will will um, derail some of the asset price inflation that we've seen, particularly in growth stocks? Um, do you think that your models are right that they will be very sensitive to it, or do you think that the market is right that hey, you know, the sky's the limit? Yeah, Tesla at, at, at twelve hundred dollars sounds right to me. Um, you know, what, what's your own outlook? Not not those based of QI, but you know, your own framework. <laughs> 
Um, well, I guess, you know, money talks. So, you know, my PA account, I'm still long tech. So um, uh, that probably gives me half the answer. Um, you know, I think some of these big companies there, I'm not a bottom-up equity guy. Their valuations do look eye-watering at times, but they are genuine game changers. Um, and they have enough cash to to keep innovating. Um, now you look at what Amazon now potentially um doing the same thing as um, uh, as Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX program in terms of putting satellites up and taking, you know, uh, coverage to a whole new level. Now, I just, uh, you can look at the valuations and, and get scared, but I, I think you have to have skin in the game personally. At least that's my, my PA perspective. Um, on the Fed and central banks, I think what you're seeing so far is that markets are telling you that, yes, the Fed are going to tighten. That inflation is more than transitory, but hopefully not 1970s style, and that you will see a central bank policy response. But at the moment, that policy response is probably going to be okay. It's going to involve maybe half dozen rate hikes uh, once um, QT is finished. And that will mean tighter conditions at the margin, but not enough to derail growth. And uh, that seems to me the main message that's coming from the US equity market. They're comfortable with the level of sensible tightening, if you want to call it that, that the Fed will engage. And therefore, at the moment, it seems to me that the divider dip scenario will probably hold for a, for a, a wee while yet. Mm, brilliant. Well, uh, Hugh, it's been great having you on Forward Guidance. Thank you so much for being here. You can find uh, Quant Insight's work at quantinsight.com and the Twitter handle at quant underscore uh, insight. Hugh, thanks again. And uh, let's hope that the future for risk assets is slightly brighter than your picture right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can see I've just come back. Yes, yeah, sorry, I should have put <laughs> light has faded dramatically. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, yes, no, no, no worries. All right, Hugh, uh, thank you so much. Cheers, Jack. All the best.